This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. Hi, I'm Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host for this show is David. Hi everyone. Yes, this is David Fogarty. I'm the climate change editor for The Straits Times. So travel may be off the cards for humans during this pandemic, but not for some animals. Every year around this time, during the month of September, Singapore starts to welcome a very special group of travellers: migratory birds. Today, we speak with Singapore ornithologist David Tan, who is pursuing a doctoral degree on bird biology at the University of New Mexico in the United States to find out more about this phenomenon. Welcome, David, to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, David, tell us where are these birds coming from, and why are they here? Well, so migration is a very interesting phenomenon. I think I, I would, you know, personally say it's one of the most spectacular natural phenomena, where you know hundreds of thousands, even millions of birds undertake these mass movements across huge distances. And in Singapore, in particular, we get a whole bunch of birds coming in across a broad swath of the northern parts of Asia, even as far south as Thailand as well. So we get some birds that are coming from Mongolia, from Siberia, migrating down to Singapore. We do get some birds migrating from as close as in northern Thailand. We have some evidence that there may be some birds coming from the South Asian continent, from India as well, but it fit us potentially. But by and large, actually, given how small Singapore is, we don't really have a clear idea of where our migratory birds are coming from. We're starting to get some clue for the shorebirds, and Parks has been tagging and tracking some of the migrating shorebirds we get at Sungai Bolo. But for most of the land birds, most of their migratory movements remain, I, I would say, a mystery. So you mentioned shorebirds, you mentioned land birds, but do we have any data for actually how many species of migratory birds actually spend time here in Singapore? Well, officially about half of bird species found in Singapore are migratory to some extent. Now, migration is in itself also a very broad term, right? You get some birds that do this annual migration, so this to-and-fro migration where they breed somewhere else, they winter either in Singapore or they pass through Singapore. But then you also get some birds that are what we call nomadic. So they don't really follow traditional migratory routes, they just wander around a little bit and they settle down somewhere. So one example of this would be one of the largest birds we found in Singapore, the Himalayan griffin. Himalayan griffins are vultures. They're normally found in uh, the Himalayan mountains. And young birds usually spend their juvenile years wandering about as teenagers would. So occasionally, I think we had one uh, two or three years ago, they'll show up in Singapore just purely by random and by chance. And so, you know, these vagrancy events are not strictly migratory behavior, but they do represent some of these very erratic, long-range movements that some birds can take. So bird movements in general are fascinating, but we don't quite nearly know as much as we'd like to about them. Other than the Himalayan griffin, which sounds very exotic, are there any other examples that you can cite, especially now that we will be starting to see more of them in Singapore? What are some common examples and where can people find them? So for, I mean, your regular migrants, we have plenty of regular visitors, shall we say, from various parts of Asia. So one of the ones that you probably will see a lot of in our parks, I mean, that's assuming if you look up, be things like uh, Arctic warblers. These are birds that are huge geographical range. They breed all across the northern latitudes of the old world. So from Europe all the way to China and Japan, Arctic warblers will be showing up very, very soon. Uh, flycatchers, so things like your Asian brown flycatchers, which is extremely nondescript, sparrow-sized birds that live high up in the branches of trees. 
to something more colorful, like the uh, yellow rum fly catchers, which you know, have a yellow backside, hence the name, uh, and also things like the blowing pitta, which breeds in probably Indochina, so somewhere in Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, making short-range movements down to Singapore. So David, how do birds know how to find their way? This is a very complex question because it falls broadly into two categories. Number one, how do birds know where to winter, right? And this we, we think is innate. There is some, probably some genetic component to this. We know that if you have two populations of birds from the same species, one that migrates down to a certain area and another that migrates down to a different place, when they hybridize, the offspring will tend to end up in sort of intermediate locations. So there's a genetic component to birds knowing where to winter. But in terms of orientation, that's an even more fascinating question. From what we know of bird biology, birds rely on a whole bunch of sensory input to orient themselves during migration. So we know that birds can tell east from west by observing where the sun rises and the sun sets. We know that birds can actually see magnetic fields, and that gives them a sense of where north and south is. But we also know that birds are able to meet the stars. There are some really cool experiments that have shown this. And because many birds rely on the stars for navigation, this means that they have to migrate at night because that's when the stars are the most visible. And because of this, when birds are passing through urban areas, they tend to get disoriented because, number one, light pollution tends to dim starlight. If you look up into the sky in Singapore, the stars are not as visible as they would be if there was completely no light pollution at all. But the other factor as well is that birds can sometimes confuse street lamps and street lights for starlight as well, and that will mess up the ability to orient themselves. So I wanted to actually move on to talking about some of the threats these migratory birds face on these epic journeys, you know, that can be halfway around the world. So light pollution is one, as you mentioned, collision with buildings, which I think we'll get to as well. Predation and destruction of environments, I guess, the breeding grounds. Is that that would be some of them. Maybe you can just give us a quick rundown as to some of the threats right. they face I mean, on their where journeys. Right, <laughs> I mean, birds face a whole bunch of threats when they migrate. You know, migration is this incredible undertaking because they're flying very long distances. So to do that, many birds have to build up substantial amounts of fat reserves before they migrate. And even during the migration, they're likely to encounter a whole bunch of threats. So one of the big threats, actually, to migrating birds is extreme weather conditions. So when you have hurricanes, the birds are not going to be able to fly right through the hurricane and survive. Huh. Which is why whenever there are major hurricanes all around the world, you will often see seabirds turning up in some of the weirdest places. I think there have been some cases in the US, for example, where things like albatrosses and frigate birds and storm petrels, and these are birds that are normally found in the open ocean, they end up in this pond or lake somewhere in the middle of Connecticut or Idaho. <laughs> and that tends to puzzle a lot of people. And that usually happens when you know birds get blown off course mm. by major tropical weather systems or major hurricanes or typhoons. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is when you have long crossings without any land in between. So we know, for example, Bartiot godwits that breed in Alaska undertake extremely long, continuous flights of 150 kilometers or more to get to the nearest landmass, which is maybe Hawaii or one of the Pacific Islands. And so that is a test of endurance. You get some birds that maybe didn't fuel up enough and they'll just drop into the water and die. So we have some evidence of this as well. We have seen in the Gulf of Thailand, for example, some of the ships and oil rigs in the area, they'll get birds just showing up because they're exhausted and they need a break because they're flying over this incredible expanse of water. Predation is something that happens all the time, right? You know, you get birds of prey all around the world and you know, they'll feed on whatever they can get. So these are some of the more, shall we say, natural causes of mortality. 
there is always a mortality rate associated with migration that stems from, from just natural occurrences. But then, of course, you have human-induced sources of mortality. So you're right in saying that habitat destruction is a major driver of this. It's not direct in a sense, but you know the loss of stopover habitats means the loss of refueling points for many of these migrating birds. And so if they're unable to find a refueling point, they'll have to move, expend a bit more energy to find the nearest patch where there's food available. And then, of course, you have urbanization, right? I mentioned earlier how streetlights can be a, a potential source of disorientation, but we also have things like high-speed traffic that can result in road kills. And I think one of the big drivers of mortality around the world is glass, it's window collisions. So the fact that glass is highly reflective, very likely to reflect vegetation around buildings, birds will mistake these, these glass sheets for trees and they'll fly into the glass and they'll die. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now back to our conversation with ornithologist David Tan on migratory birds and their perilous journeys across the ocean. So David, you have mentioned a number of threats that migratory birds face along the way. But can you just tell us what has your experience in Singapore told you about how these have affected our numbers here? We don't really have any detailed population level estimates for how mortality affects the population sizes of migrating birds. Much as we'd like to have this kind of data, I think we are at least several years off from having that level of data resolution. And this is for several reasons. Number one, most of the birds that migrate to Singapore pass through undetected. We know this because from the birds we pick up dead. So, you know, over the last seven years, eight years now, I've been on and off picking up dead birds from all over Singapore, right? People will call me. And since I've been away, they've been calling the lab instead and will send people out to pick up these dead birds. And what we've realized is that the numbers of dead birds and the species we find, they don't quite correspond to what bird watchers have been seeing out in the rainforests, in the parks, in the gardens. I mean, if you look at the numbers we're getting, we did a survey between 1998 and 2016, so about 18 years worth of data. And the number one mortality that we find is the blooming pitta, which isn't exactly a very decommonous migrant we get. Number two on the list is the oriental dwarf kingfisher, the yellow rock flycatcher. Again, birds that you know you do see occasionally, but not exactly the commonest migrants that observers usually spot. So there is a bit of an incongruence between the numbers we observe that die in urban spaces and the abundance that we observe from just bird watching. And this difference in numbers could be down to several factors. One, it could be that some of these birds are more susceptible to dying than others from collisions, from roadkill. But it could also be that the majority of these migrating birds are just passing through unseen and unheard. And the mortality rates actually might paint maybe a more accurate picture of the true numbers of migrants that pass through Singapore. So long story short, we don't really have a clear idea about how deaths during migration affect overall population trends of these birds. In part because, number one, we don't have good estimates of how many birds are migrating through Singapore at any one point in time, but also because we don't really have good estimates of population trends from their breeding ranges, whether it's in China or in Thailand or in Taiwan or in Japan or Korea. Now, David, I just wanted to pick up on the point you mentioned earlier about bird building collisions, because in Singapore especially, where we have skyscrapers everywhere, is this a particularly bad problem for Singapore? You bring up a very interesting point, right? It, logically speaking, you know, if, if you think about this from first principles, you'd expect that the more surface area 
a building has, whether in terms of its footprint, its lateral size, or its height. The more surface area a building has, the more likely birds will collide into it. That's basic statistics. But at least from what we're seeing from data coming out of the United States, to some extent from Australia as well, and also from the data we're seeing here, height doesn't seem to be a major predictor of collision likelihoods. Um, if that were the case, we would be seeing lots of birds littered all over the rooftops of buildings as well. But what we do see is that birds are colliding into buildings of all heights, from squat and short buildings to extremely tall buildings. And as far as we can tell, most of these collisions are occurring only on the first four floors. We need to do a little bit more analysis of this data set to actually you know, suss out the exact weights of these drivers. But it does seem like low-rise and high-rise buildings both equally contribute to bird mortalities. And I think, just looking at the data and looking at what other studies have found, it's more important to look at the amount of glass on these buildings and also the types of vegetation that surround these buildings as well. So it is, as far as we know, the combination of highly reflective glass and plants, trees or shrubs being reflected in these glass facades that is driving bird window collisions. So David, what's being done outside of Singapore, or even indeed in Singapore, to safeguard migratory birds? What sort of adaptations are being made for buildings to make them less lethal to birds, for example? Right. So in the US right now, there is, and oh, actually Canada is uh, pushing this really hard. So Canada has been at the forefront of bird collision mitigation worldwide. And so they've recently been working, I think, with 3M to produce this product called Feather Friendly. And it's basically a series of stickers. They're semi-translucent UV reflecting stickers that go on the outside of glass facades. And basically what it does is it creates a repetitive dot pattern about two inches by two inches. And how it's supposed to work is that basically by increasing the reflectivity of UV light, which birds can see and which you know we're mostly blind to, it'll increase the visibility of glass to flying birds and therefore reduce the likelihood of collision. Now, there is only one place in Singapore that has tried out this product, it's the NUS. Uh, the Ridgery Residential College has installed this feather-friendly product onto some of its glass facades. And, you know, we are monitoring their building over the next couple of years to see whether or not there's any appreciable decline in the number of collisions they record. But there are other things that many cities are doing around the world. So I think New York is quite famous for doing this. So the 9-11 Memorial famously is a, a light trap for birds since it coincides with peak migration in the US as well. And so you have these two beacons of light going to the sky and you can actually see birds just getting lost and disoriented circling around these light beams. And so what New York is starting to do is that they're having some days where they try to minimize the amount of light pollution that they put out in order to facilitate bird migration as well. And this is something that we should be thinking about. How do we reduce our light pollution profile? And also, can we create corridors of darkness that you know, allows birds to, to pass through relatively unscathed? In the Singapore context, I'm not sure how feasible corridors of darkness will be. Sure. But are there strategies that we can put in place to reduce light pollution in general. Yes, definitely. So David, with migration season already here in Singapore, what should people do if they do come across birds that may have knocked into the glass as they were flying? Right, so the peak hasn't actually started. So migration has technically started. It started as early as in the late July to August with some of the early birds come in. But the peak really only occurs in October. If you look at the figures that we have for migrating bird collisions, September, it's under 10, and then all of a sudden it spikes to about 85 cases for the whole month of October. 
So early October to mid-October is really when this, the numbers of birds will spread. I mean, and then this is because we're at the equator, right? We're not in higher latitudes, so it takes time for the bird wave to make its way down to the equator. So if people do come across birds that are injured or in distress, either post-collision or you know because of disorientation, ACRS is the organization to call. They run a 24-hour rescue hotline, and they have people on standby to come by to rescue these birds. I should add that if you do come across a bird that's in distress, it is not advisable for you to try to look after the bird yourself because they have fairly specific requirements that not everyone can provide. There was one case where I was contacted by a member of the public who found a injured gluing pitta. It's a beautiful bird, all seven colors of the rainbow. It's, it's one of the most beautiful birds on earth, in my opinion. And, you know, she thought she could look after it. She brought it home and she fed it papayas. Despite the fact that gluing pitters, they don't eat fruits, they are insect eaters. They eat worms, they eat earthworms primarily, and they eat insects. And, you know, feeding a papaya to an insect eater might actually be harmful because some of these birds may not necessarily have the enzymes to digest simple sugars that come from fruits. Now, if you come across a dead bird, right, that's a different story. So if you do come across a dead bird, your best thing to do would be to call the uh, NUS Avian Evolution Lab. Uh, the number is 844-95023. You can telegram them or you can send them a WhatsApp message. And they'll send someone down to pick up the dead bird to be preserved in the laboratory for genetic research as well. So, David, there was another question which I think is quite pertinent with global fears about the coronavirus and the COVID-19 sort of disease. We have all these foreign birds coming in. Are there concerns, valid concerns, that these birds are bringing in diseases? That's very possible from a broad scale perspective. From a global perspective, you know, the movements of migratory, especially uh, waterfowl, they're known to be one of the major vectors of potential zoonotic diseases like H5N1. Now, in Singapore, we're fairly lucky for various reasons. Number one, we don't get a lot of migrating ducks here. For some reason, ducks are just extremely rare in Singapore, aside from one or two species. So as far as transmission of disease from waterfowl populations in the north down to Singapore, I think personally the likelihood is low. I do know that AVS, Fortnite and Parks, uh, and NEA as well, at least various government agencies, they do undertake biosurveillance measures. So thank you, David, for joining us today and giving us a one-on-one on bird migration in Singapore. Hopefully, I think the main takeaway is that we really don't know enough. And I hope that comes through because uh, <laughs> migrating birds are so complex, right? Every species behaves differently. I mean, we know to some extent that genetics does control migration, but we're starting to realize that different species, it might be completely different genes controlling migration. So migration is a phenomenon that looks unified from the surface level, but when you dig into the drivers of migration, it's actually a lot more complex. So we'll look out for more papers coming out from you then? Oh, give me time and adequate funding, I guess. For more on birds and other wildlife that share our planet, do check out the stories in The Straits Times. That's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.